Have I mentioned that we have to go back to Enceladus? We have to go back to Enceladus. It is this place in the solar system where liquid water is being sprayed out into space, water that we know has been in the presence of geological activity, water that is infused with dissolved hydrogen gas, the food for bacteria, water that contains organic molecules. Like if there's one place in the solar system where we could find evidence of life that is beyond Earth, Enceladus is the place because it makes this material so readily available. You just have to fly through it and analyze it. So what will it take for us to be able to understand whether or not there's life on Enceladus? Now, there is a fairly large flagship mission that is has the potential to be developed called the Orbalander, and this was one of the priorities in the decadal survey. But there have been other ideas to investigate the plumes at Enceladus and try to help answer this question, is there life there? So my guest today is Dr. Marshall Seaton. He is a astrochemist, works at NASA, and is one of the investigators behind a concept mission called the Astrobiology Exploration at Enceladus, or ACTS. And this would be a New Frontiers mission, so fairly low budget, and would be able to quickly get out to Enceladus, investigate, try and give us some evidence whether or not there's some kind of biological process at Enceladus, which again, I think is one of the most interesting questions we could possibly ask. So we have a wide ranging conversation about the science case for Enceladus, what the axe mission would comprise and how long it would take to get that science back. And then we also just talk in general about the search for life in the solar system, the kinds of icy moons and places that might be interesting. And then just some general advice for Marshall about how to participate in and how to design mission concepts and how to participate in other mission concepts out there and how maybe if you're a new researcher, uh, you want to be able to sort of help out and and participate in some of these projects. There's, there's a lot of need out there, so you can be active. All right, enjoy this interview with Marshall Seaton. So if you were to stand on the surface of Enceladus and in your spacesuit and sort of peer down into one of these tiger strike chasms as its geysering material off into space, what would you see? What would it look like? Um, you'd probably get smacked in the face by a bunch of ice coming out. Is this traveling right. really fast? <laughs> but, but, so you would uh, feel it. Like you could put your hand out and you would feel the the blast of the ice particles? I mean, presumably, yeah. You'd feel something because mm. it's, it's generating this continuous plume and stuff's traveling really, really fast out of there. I mean, the vapor is like five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred kilometers per second coming out of there. And the ice grains are slower because they're heavier, but but there's definitely stuff coming out of there. Yeah. Right. And I mean, is there a place on Earth that would feel somewhat familiar? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, of course, I don't do a whole lot of exploring in the Arctic or anything like that, but, yeah. but I can't I mean, think been, of any place that... I've been to like a, a glacier and how you get these sort of cracks and fissures forming on the glacier and you can have these pools of water down below and it feels like it just goes on forever beneath down there. And I've been to Iceland where you get these geysers that are blasting hot water up every, so be like mashing those two together. 
Yeah, kind of. It's, it's a really interesting place. And we don't, we have an idea of how the grains are formed and the vapors expelled up. Um, but we haven't really nailed the compositional link between the two because you have like this, this surface, um, this, uh, of this liquid water reservoir. And then there are these vents that, that come like, uh, that where all of the, the vapor and grains climb up to the surface. And with, that's part of, uh, what people are trying to study right now is like how that, like what, what that vent structure actually looks like, because we don't know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the answer is get, you'll get back to me once the mission has completed its science objectives. <laughs> once a yeah. mission. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once somebody goes up there and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the science case for Enceladus. Why is it the most interesting place that we should investigate in the solar system? And that, like, I'm not, I'm not even putting that to a vote. That's no controversy. That is a hundred percent true facts. We have to go back to Enceladus. Why? Um, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I will, okay. uh, say ahead of time that the, the views that I express here are my views. They don't represent yep. the priorities of NASA, JPL, Caltech, or any combination thereof. And nope. all the planetary bodies are unique and awesome in their own ways. But Enceladus Absolutely. is super awesome. But Enceladus is the best. Yeah, I understand. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, it's just well, me. You know, I'm saying this. You're not, you, you don't have to, you can feel free to uh, love all the planets in the solar system. But, uh, but yeah, Enceladus is just magical. So what's, it's, it's pretty what's going on? What is making it so special? Well, I'll, I'll sort of give you a, a chronicling of, of how we, we figured all this awesome stuff out. And so this, I'm going to backtrack to the Cassini-Huygens mission, which, um, was launched back in the 90s. Um, and the goal of that mission was to, had, had three primary goals, to study the, to study Saturn, um, to see what's, what was going on at Titan, which I think you've, you've covered a bit about in the past, and to study the Saturnian satellites, which is basically the moons around Saturn. And we didn't know about the, what, all this stuff that was going on uh, at Enceladus when the Cassini mission was, was formulated. Um, but... Um, Cassini flew by Enceladus and there were these, these, the thermal anomalies at the South pole where there was, there were these regions that were way hotter than they should have been. And when I say hot, I don't mean like hot as we know it. I mean, like instead of negative 200 Celsius, it was like negative 150 Celsius or something. And, uh, and so, um, everybody was like, okay, hold up. We got, we got to figure out what's going on. And then, so, um, then they did another targeted flyby and did some imaging and and uh, chemical analyses and things like that. And uh, long story short, um, they discovered this continuous plume of water and ice that was formed over the South Polar terrain. And we've never seen anything like this, like this really, um, in, in in our solar system. And so it was it was insane, and uh, insanely cool. And then so some follow-up investigations um, essentially determined that this plume, like long story short, is sourced from a global subsurface liquid water ocean. And we see oceans elsewhere in our solar system, like Europa very likely has a global subsurface ocean as well. But the difference there is you have to drill through like 10 miles of ice 
to get the material at Europa. And, and there's there's just as compelling of a science case at, at Europa, too. I mean, that's where we literally have a flagship mission that's planned to go there. But the difference between uh, Enceladus and Europa is Enceladus is literally venting samples for us to come pick up and sample. So we have the unique opportunity to directly sample the contents of a subsurface global ocean of an icy moon. And it gets even more compelling than that because in addition to this global ocean, like, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of habitability and, and, and life detection and things like that, um, follow the water is the general, you know, the, the approach that, that, that scientists take. But um, you don't just need water. You need the, the chemical elements, like, you know, for life as we know it, um, at least based on our understanding of life. But you need a source of heat, too. And there were some analyses that the Cassini spacecraft and some of the instruments on the spacecraft, the Cosmic Dust Analyzer, did of Saturn's E-ring. And uh, it's one of Saturn's rings. And this ring is formed from the plume material that's emanating from the Enceladus Ocean. So by analyzing this ring, the material in this ring, the dust and grains, we can see what's coming out of Enceladus, basically. Um, and something really interesting was found in, uh, in those E-ring grains, silicon nanoparticles with a very specific size range, about two to eight nanometers. And this is important because there's only one place that we know that those silicon nanoparticles of that size range can be formed. And those are in hydrothermal systems, like the ones that we have on Earth, like those uh, chimney things at the bottom of the ocean where that host these diverse ecosystems. And so, uh, based on that, we know that there's very likely um, water-rock interactions that are circulating all of this material from the chondritic, from the, um, the rocky core of Enceladus out into the ocean. You have these chemical gradients present because of that. And hydrothermal systems, I mean, there's a little bit of controversy, and I'm not an origins of life chemist, but, but the, um, these hydrothermal systems have been implicated in the origin of life on our planet or the emergence of life on our planet. And so it's, it's a really exciting place that offers a unique opportunity to sample what's going on without any of the technological constraints with like getting through the ice or anything like that using a flyby or orbiter mission architecture. So and even story, like here on Earth, like if, if some horrible solar flare or supernova wiped out all life on the surface of Earth, those black smokers at the bottom of the oceans would continue on indefinitely as these spots of habitability. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They have no connection to the outside of, of the planet. And good news, you know, Enceladus is, the surface of Enceladus is freezing cold and yet it could be having this. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, that's one line of evidence that you've got this geologic process that is interacting with the ocean at the bottom of Enceladus. But more stuff has been found in the plumes that even is even as exciting as, as that discovery, right? Yeah. Um, another thing that was uh, Frank Postberg published a paper in um, 2018 um, showing evidence for this. But, but an, another cool thing, and I'm glad you brought that up, um, we found evidence for these large macromolecular organic compounds in the plume. Um, they weren't directly detected, 
because Cassini's instruments were older technology and they didn't have the range to directly, the instruments didn't have the size range or the mass range to detect these large molecules, but they detected fragments of them. Um, and so we have indirect evidence, but strong evidence that there are these large molecules and we don't know where they're coming from. Like, could this be some like geochemical processing that we don't know about? Or is this like, or could there be like critters at the bottom of the ocean, like making these organic compounds? And like, it's, it's really exciting and it just like strengthens the case right. for going back to Enceladus. But but even if it's not critters, you know, I know that you've also found dissolved hydrogen gas mm -hmm. in these plumes as well, which is food for bacteria. So yes. when you run through this list, like it is just check, check, check. You've got yeah, you've you keep got bringing up more active, reasons. Yeah, <laughs> I know you've got a, you've got an active energy source at the bottom of of the ocean. You've got liquid water. It's it's you've got hydrogen gas. You've got complex organic molecules. You couldn't order up a better list of of an environment here in the solar system as a place to go search for it's life. Not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah, we're doing great. <laughs> so, so then, uh, so what spacecraft is currently at Saturn right now that we can use to understand these processes better? Um, well, unfortunately, a few years back, Cassini did a nosedive into Saturn. And so there is currently not a spacecraft um, that is capable of doing um, flyby studies of, of uh, Enceladus or sampling the plume or, or anything like that. There are some that are being formulated. And in the most recent New Frontiers call, which is basically NASA saying, okay, guys, um, give us all your mission concepts. Let's see what 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 you guys are, are formulating and where we can go. Um, or not the New Frontiers call, but the most recent decadal survey prioritized Enceladus in its list of, of priorities um, for a flagship mission, which is a mission that essentially has no cost cap. Um, uh, right under a, a Uranus probe, the second priority is a, an Enceladus uh, Orbilander concept, which is like an orbiter and a lander. And then um, uh, one of its smaller mission classes also uh, solicited a return mission to Enceladus as well. So, so like NASA's aware and, and, and is planning to, to go back, but it's just, there, there are some issues, um, that like in, in terms of figuring out, um, uh, how to sample, how much to sample, like things like that. But, uh, but I mean, budgets are always so tight on these space yeah. missions and these flagship missions are very slow moving, large, uh, creatures that move through the pipeline and as they get developed and as the science objectives are, are nailed down and the technology is improved and there are various, even new technologies have to be developed for It's a very long and slow process and the distance and time that takes to get out to Enceladus. Like even if you launch your mission tomorrow, you're not, you're not going to start getting science results for more than half a decade. Um, and everybody's just too impatient for that. So uh, I want to talk about the, your, I guess the, the mission concept that you're working with. Uh, so what, what's it called? Um, the astrobiology exploration at Enceladus acts for short. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, caveats, here, uh, you know, anyone from NASA is listening, we understand this is not an actual mission. This is not a mission concept. This is just 
people hanging out, chatting about cool ideas, what would be fun in scientific paper form. Um, yeah. Uh, so what is, what is the idea of, of the Axe mission? Um, well, it was, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. Um, and it's, it's what's called a concept study. And, and what that does is sort of, uh, explores the trade space, what you, what sort of instruments, what sort of science you can do under a given cost cap. And so there's never a shortage of, of, uh, science to do There's, but it's, it's, you know, trying to fit all the science and a cost cap. And so this was um, a result of the NASA Planetary Science Summer School program. And it's not as much a summer school as it is uh, like a rigorous mission design program where they're basically training the new generation of like mission scientists to, to propose compelling missions. Um, and so it's a competed program, you apply for it, and then um, your team develops a mission concept. And so we developed the, um, back in 2021, the, the structure, like the, the um, skeleton for the mission. And since then we've been iterating on it and nailing down our science objectives and things like that. And the paper that you saw was basically the culmination of all that. Um, go ahead. Are you going to say something? Oh, I was going to say, so, so let's kind of go through this. So I guess yeah, yeah. what, you know, I mean, like, with the Orbalander being obviously one of the priorities in NASA's pipeline, you know, I've done this long enough that I kind of know how this works, which is that the thing that is the lower priority has to wait a cycle. And so it could very well be that we're going to wait 10 years for the next decadal survey, the Uranus mission is off and away, or at least f far enough along development that now the Orbalander kicks up to the next notch. So I guess, what are the clever, I guess, what are the clever ideas that you're kind of bringing together to maybe offer up a mission that could solve some of these science objectives sooner than, and at a lower budget than everyone sort of originally anticipated? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, um, and you make a good point. I mean, you can fly by and, and sample the, the, the stuff in the plume uh, under a new frontiers budget. Uh, and so we, we with the, this concept, there are four main science objectives. Um, and the first one is directly searching for biosignatures within the plume, chemical biosignatures. And, and the, the, we include a combination of chemical analysis and geophysical and geomorphological investigations um, to sort of contextualize any sort of the chemical measurements we make. Um, but the first is looking, like searching for chemical evidence of life. You know, can we see like these compounds that we can maybe trace back to what might be a biogenic origin or what, what might be biogenic? And then uh, the second, and I can go into more detail um, mm -hmm. if you like. Um, at the, we, the will, second, we will, but yeah. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the second Because I'm, I'm about uh, to ask you how, but let's, let's go through the, let's go through okay, the, the yeah, high level yeah. list of tell objectives. Them you, yeah. Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them. Tell yeah, them, tell yeah, them. yeah, exactly. Um, and the second objective we have is, is looking at um, whether the ocean is long lived or potentially, potentially transient. Like I'm looking at the heat mm. budget of Enceladus. It's emitting all this heat and it's generating X amount of heat. And so we want to see if these two values are in equilibrium, if the ocean, ocean's been there long enough for life to take hold or whether it could be like melting or freezing or, or whatnot. And that's basically a heat balance equation. 
Um, the third objective is, like we hit on a little bit before, um, we don't know exactly what the compositional link between this plume material and the ocean is. And that's critical if we're going to attempt to do any sort of life detection investigations there. Because if you sample something in the plume, you want to make sure that what that it's representative of the ocean composition and, you know, and the, the associated challenges with that. And then, um, and so we're looking at the, the vent structure. Uh, and then the fourth objective is basically surveying the global crater population um, and seeing what it can tell us about Enceladus's past and what's happened in terms of other areas that might have the other high heat flux regions or whether the ice shell has undergone reorientation in the past or anything like that. And so those are the, right. the, the, the four science objectives. Right. And so let's go back around to the beginning then with yeah. the the one that I'm sure a lot of people are really excited about is is attempting to see if you can find some kind of biosignature in the plume. What kind of instruments would you want to be able to do that? Um, apologies if I use a little bit of jargon. You have to catch but me. I have a very technical audience. So, okay, I, good, you know, good. if you if you over jargon, I'll draw you back. But don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Cool. Feel free to talk about mass spectrometers. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, that's that's where I was headed. And there are a lot of people that are proposing a lot of different instruments and people have different opinions on what is uh, a good instrument to bring to Enceladus. This is simply my opinion. Um, but if you're going to do any sort of, of life detection investigation, um, I'll preface this by saying that that Pierre-Simon Laplace stated that the evidence for a claim must be purported to its strangeness. And what that translates to is what Carl Sagan coined, which is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so if you're going to claim that you've detected extraterrestrial life for the first time in human history, civilization level science, then you better be sure that, yes. that it's it's unambiguous, okay? And we've seen how that's worked out in the past. Think about the Viking yeah. experiment, the Mars meteorite, yeah. UAPs, like it goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you want your evidence to be as unambiguous as possible. And one of the the best instruments that we have for that are mass spectrometers because they provide not only um, like what sort of chemical functionalities might be there, but they give you structural information. They tell you what the molecule is exactly if you have the appropriate um, uh, mass resolution and things like that. Um, and so it's uh, if you're going to do any sort of life detection mission, you have to have a mass spectrometer. Um, that's like, I'm, that's, in my opinion, that's just, it's gotta be on your list of, of instruments. And, and so, like, if I, like, took a scoop of seawater and gave it to you and said, what can you learn with a mass spectrometer from this gloop? Um, what can I what learn? Would you, what would you be able to find out? Yeah, I mean, if I said, you know, if I just handed you a, a, a glass of water and it, it contained, right, like a glass of water from the ocean, it's going to contain dissolved minerals, it's going to contain 
uh, particles that have come from hydrothermic vents. It's going to contain DNA, trace DNA from life. It's going to contain all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So how how would you? And that's the equivalent, I guess, of you sort of flying through the sea spray, you know, with your yeah. with your tongue. So like what information can you tease out of it? Yeah. Saying, what would you be able to discover? Like, yeah. I'm trying to understand, like, I guess, like how sensitive is this? As you said, you have to be sure. How can you be sure? Well, it's, it's uh, actually a really complex problem, um, uh, especially when using the um, molecular biosignatures. Like they're, they're really powerful, but it, because they allow you to look for life as you don't know it just by looking for the different distributions of molecules within a sample. But if you, it, it's not one of those things where you just inject a sample and it's just like this beautiful readout that says biology or not biology, right? It's, it's really complex because you get really net messy mass spectrums and you have this background that's generated by not life. Okay. So you have like all of these, um, uh, geochemical and geological processes that result in chemical distributions, but you have this this uh, distribution that's generated by biology sort of superimposed on it. And so it's sort of figuring out what your abiotic background looks like. This is specifically, you, you asked me what, what could you learn? I'm just sort of uh, elaborating on how you would do like a life detection experiment, just as sort of a thought experiment. You have to establish what your abiotic background might be, what you expect to be there in the absence of biology, and then establish a quantitative threshold for what you might think, like say there are these, this is the, the, the big hill of signatures from not life, and then you have these signatures for life that are superimposed on it how to tease those out of your sample. And it's a little easier on earth because like you can just see tons of, of amino acids and proteins and DNA and all this stuff. Um, but in a place that's as cold and energy limited as a place like Enceladus, it may not be that cut and dry. And so, um, so now, now would it not be as cut and dry because the, the quantity of organic molecules in the sample is lower. And so it's a very faint signal that you are tempted to tease out because I imagine on earth, if I gave you that jar of seawater to analyze, it's almost like a cacophony of molecules, <laughs> every possible permutation of molecules in there screaming simultaneously. That also sounds tricky to, to sort out the peaks and the valleys when you're looking at the mass spectrometer data. Um, yeah, like on, on, on earth, we see, um, there are some really distinct signatures, uh, for life, uh, as we know it on earth. Like for example, um, um, you can look at amino acid distributions, um, on earth and earth-based life, you see, um, abundances of some of the larger, more exotic amino acids that are, um, in just the same quantity as glycine, the simplest amino acid. Whereas if you look in meteorites where life hasn't, hasn't generated any of these organics, glycine is orders of magnitude higher in uh, abundance to these other ones um, because it's just simply like more energetically favorable to make. Um, but life doesn't care as much about what's energetically favorable. Like life cares about what it finds useful for biology. 
And so that would be a clear indication on Earth. And not only that, we find these complex like biomolecules that you, if you just like scoop some seawater out, you would see these molecules like, okay, there is no way this could be generated in the absence of biology. So it would be like pretty simple. Um, and so you talked a little bit about um, abundances of, of molecules that, that we would see. Um, the cell densities that we expect based on some modeling that's been done uh, of, regarding the available energy at Enceladus, the cell densities are likely very, very low. Um, they might be amplified in what we see in the plume based on some uh, things that are happening at the surface of the water table. I won't go like too much into, into detail, but... Right, but like pond scum but, at the top of the water table. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, you might have heard about that before. Yeah. Um, there's like this bubble bursting thing that's been... I just have ponds. I have ponds and I see the scum. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's an organic film that's uh, yeah. likely at the top of the water, like we have here on Earth, and so it sort of concentrates that stuff. But, but the cell densities are just uh, it, based on some modeling that's been done. It's just a lot lower there because it's so much colder and it's so energy limited. I mean, here you have the sun, you have like all this geochemical energy that's being produced, and so it's like you just take a cup of water and then you can find it. But it's uh, if life is it in Solidus, it's 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 going to be a little more difficult. Um, so, you know, with the other parts about analyzing the temperature, that sounds like an infrared camera, counting the craters, that sounds like a camera. Um, what, what makes this a relatively inexpensive, quick to, you know, to fall into that new, that to fall into that new frontiers program, you're looking at a mission that can come in at, what is it like a billion dollars? Yeah, I think the cost cap for the New Frontiers Five call was nine hundred million. Hours yeah, came in, yeah, so just at, under a billion dollars, right? Which, yeah, yeah. When you consider, you know, the big flagships run five billion. Maybe the Mars sample return mission is getting closer to eight billion. So you know, things yeah. things get expensive. No, no, it, uh, I, if, if you were to land, it, it takes about one point one billion dollars to land a dry paper bag on Enceladus. Right. So, and, and that's not adding any instruments and whatnot. So this yeah. is for a flyby. We 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 had um, a mass spectrometer and a high resolution camera and um, a radio antenna, which is like included for radio communication. So it's like half an instrument. So we basically had like two and a half instruments that we were able to tease a lot of science out of. And, and, and part of developing these mission concepts is like how much science can you squeeze out of what you're able to put on put on this, uh, this spacecraft, you know, with, with the instruments that you have available to you. So, so let's talk about like now sort of 30,000 foot view here. You have been approved. Uh, it's, it's made it through the system. Um, what, uh, so w w how would the whole mission profile work? So, you know, the construction of the mission has been completed. You got your, uh, RTG, uh, everything is assembled and together and it's on your rocket. What kind of rocket are you using? Is it a, is it a Falcon heavy? Is it an SLS? Uh, no, I think it's a medium class launch vehicle uh, that wasn't like specified. I think it's, you can, there's this, um, this document you can look where they have like all the different launch vehicles and everything. And if you like go up in mass, you have to, you have to like, uh, get to a heavier, like a class launch vehicle and things like that. I think ours is like medium class. 
but I, we didn't like talk about specific rockets or anything like that. Okay. Okay. Um, and how many flybys of Earth you have to do to do your gravitational assists? Oh, you thought well, you there? mean like the the trajectory? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so so with with this mission mission we would uh, launch in 2034, um, and then using a Venus Earth 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 gravity assist. So you would have to first go around Venus and then use Earth's gravity a few times to wind up and then slingshot out into the Jupiter system. And then once you're out into Jupiter, you use Jupiter's gravity to slingshot out into the Saturn system. Uh, but getting out there isn't the problem. It's slowing down that's the problem. <laughs> because you have to slow down enough to where you can uh, uh, do a, an orbital insertion to where you can actually like get in a stable orbit. And then so... Um, after orbital insertion, I think we had a two-year pump-down phase planned because um, to target, like for in this case, to target Enceladus with the correct inclination, geometry, altitude, things like that for our flybys, we'd need to use Titan's gravity to slow down for about two years uh, doing uh, multiple orbits of Saturn. And then once all that's finished, then we could enter science operations where we do a flyby about every two weeks. So you wouldn't be in a tight orbit around Enceladus. It would be a much wider orbit, kind of similar to, say, Juno. Yeah, yeah. It's So the, the way this mission architecture specifically would work is you're orbiting Saturn, but you're just doing these flybys of one of Saturn's moons in orbit around Saturn. Getting into orbit around Enceladus is very tricky. At least, well, I mean, it's under the, the New Frontier's cost cap it is. Because uh, again, you have to you have to slow down to, to where you can be slow enough to where you can get into a stable orbit um, around Enceladus, um, which doesn't really have very much gravity, uh, and so it's you can do it, um, but it's just it's a lot more difficult in the context of the budgetary constraints that are imposed on some of these missions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the geniuses of the Europa Clipper mission is stay in orbit around Jupiter but make those flybys of Europa on, on enough of a regular basis to build up that science. And I think we're seeing this same, the same idea showing up more and more. Um, and it makes yeah. it, it makes a ton of sense. Exactly. As you said, you know, if you're to, to actually slow down, you need a bigger rocket. And if you need a bigger rocket, then it's going to get more expensive. It takes a lot of fuel too. Yeah. 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 That's the hard part of getting to any of those destinations that you want to get to is that a flyby is a fraction of the price of going into orbit and yet in orbit is orders of magnitude more science and you've got always make that that decision either way um so you've arrived at the saturnian system you've gone you've done some orbital mechanics using various moons to tweak your orbit you're now in this really wide orbit around enceladus flying through the saturn system so how would the science operations work with the mission um, for hours that we have like a minimum number of flybys that we need to accomplish our science. So typically they, that you get more science out of it than just the minimum that you propose. But, um, we have, uh, in our concept, a minimum of five plume fly-throughs where we would collect, I think 240 mass spectra per plume or per flyby. Um, and then in addition to that, we have, like I talked about, um, event morphology. Um, we would also have uh, some high resolution imaging science of the, the South Polar terrain planned um, because uh, 
in through throughout Enceladus's orbital phase, we expect these vents that you talked about at the the, the South Pole that all that um, that that ice is shooting out of into space. Um, we expect those that throughout Enceladus's orbital phase, due to tidal forcing, these vents should be opening and closing like this. Um, and so we're, we want to see if we could, and, and there are different mechanisms of the, their formation that we expect to be occurring. And so by looking at the morphology um, and how they're opening and closing and things like that, we can sort of tease out what the underlying plumbing um, mechanism would be. And so we have some, uh, in the concept, some high resolution imaging flybys at low altitudes planned for that as well. And then uh, also a minimum of 22 flybys, well, it doesn't have to be exactly 22 flybys, but 22 flybys would be required for the imaging to do the, the to survey the global crater population, to do the crater science that I talked about. Uh, and then we required a minimum of 30 flybys for our gravity science to see, um, to look at the ice shell thickness of Enceladus and, and wow. see what the heat balance might look like. So like four to six years or so to kind of really build up the whole science case. Is that right? Uh, I think we had four years of science operations planned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. But I mean, it'll have an, an I'm assuming it's going to have an RTG because it's so far away from the sun. You can't power this on solar panels. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the voyagers are still going. So who knows how long it'll last. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there, there, there's a concept I read that uses solar panels. They just have to be like, really big hmm I don't well, remember which so I for example like at, at jupiter it's 25 times so the solar panel surface area for a mission that goes to jupiter has to be 25 times as big to provide the same amount of power as what it would be at earth yeah. and so I, I i should do the math at some point but i'm sure it's in the hundred low high oh, we, we did the math in the paper i, I, I forgot yeah. what it what it, what the value actually was but but i'm it's it's like not super uh not super efficient but i know that that there are concepts that utilize it and like in combination with an rtg or something like that but yeah we we use an mmrtg or, i mean or it's like interesting though because you do have like a couple of weeks to recharge the battery when you think of like ingenuity for example that is powered by a little battery and a little solar panel and it just sits on the surface of mars until it has enough power and then it's able to take off. I wonder if you could have your spacecraft just store power over the course of two weeks and then into its battery system and then it's going to do its flyby and then it has to sort of deliver all that power to do the science and then it, you know, digests what it found for the next two weeks and then comes back around. So, so who knows? Because it doesn't have to be active the entire time. So it'd be interesting to see where that well, you, well you have off. like minimum like operating levels that like like when whenever an instrument isn't necessarily like operating but it needs to be like kept to a certain temperature in the spacecraft like the um subsystems all need to be kept up to a certain temperature and things like that so uh, there's like a non-zero amount of energy required while it's like not uh during flyby operations but yeah yeah you're right yeah. And there are some interesting, I mean, even through NASA, they're doing a lot of really interesting work in 
other types of RTGs, so not just the traditional plutonium 238. Like there's different, they, you know, some people are proposing different flavors of RTGs using different isotopes that will deliver a different heat profile and have a half-life that, that lasts a different amount of time. And so, you know, it may very well be that in the future, you'll be able to kind of go like, I want something that's going to give me a lot of power, but only last 12 years, as opposed to less power, but it's going to last 50 years or however long the voyages are going to last. Oh, that, that would be sick because, I mean, a lot of the the people sometimes think that that whenever you you are going out to, to do some science in, in space, you just like take the some instrument you have in your lab and you just slap it and like duct tape it to the spacecraft and it just goes out and does its thing. But it's it's a lot more complicated than that because like you said, you have a finite amount of power that you have in your spacecraft that has to go to all these empower all these subsystems. And so power constraints are a serious deal. Mm -hmm. And so they're the top three priorities for missions, right? Like the number one priority for mission is power. And the second priority is power. And the third priority is power. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. And and then after that you have, you have size and, and then like volume and, and, and all that and mass and of course, but, but yeah, 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 it's it's that would be very sick. But the, of course, I this, don't really like. Yeah, but I mean, and I think like from my perspective, you know, when you go back to that idea of the orbital lander, it kind of takes you back to that controversy that happened with the Europa Clipper and the idea that they would attach a lander to the Clipper before they really knew where they wanted to land. It feels like a wise move to send out a mission that's almost in the spirit of, of the Europa Clipper, but more specialized for flying through plumes with its tongue out to, um, to then chart the, the, the terrain for the, that a lander, a, a perfectly chosen lander with maybe a little more weight than a paper bag can set down and, and continue the, the mission. Yeah. I, I think that that's sort of what the orbital lander concept is is they want to, I mean, based on my understanding, is they want to have uh, the first phase of the mission be like an orbiter-type architecture where they do survey all of the the surface at high resolution, everything, and identify these optimal landing sites and things like that. And then once they've done their their orbital science and and um, surveyed and done all this high resolution imaging and identified within that two year time frame or whatever it was, I can't remember exactly. Then they, within that time frame, they were able to, they're able to select their uh, landing site and then they land and do all their landed science. And right. so, and communicate with the orbiter and you've got this nice relay back to earth. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, exactly. so you say launching in 2034. So when does that, yeah. when would you arrive at Enceladus? As, uh, a 12 year cruise phase. So, uh, 2046 and a, a lot of the mission, at least based on the launch windows we have in the next, next couple of decades, if a mission is selected this year to Enceladus, we're not getting data back until 2050. Yeah. And so, um, it's tough. Now you, talked a bit about sample return is that that's that can't be in your proposal no 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 that's like a yeah. whole nother guy i can't yeah, even yeah. imagine what that would look like <laughs> right yeah it'd be yeah. sick 
but yeah, yeah no know. absolutely yeah well i mean it's the same thing like you look at the mars sample return mission and you just think like it is such a complicated thing to have perseverance roaming across the surface picking up samples taking them to a ground site handing it off to a rocket the rocket flying off you know it's it's a, there's a lot of moving parts and yet can you imagine having whatever it is, 30 samples of the most interesting places that geologists could find in the place that's most likely to have evidence of past life on Mars in the hands of scientists in the best laboratories on Earth. Yes, please. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the, the, the Mars community is so, I mean, I'm not even in the Mars community, really, and I'm stoked for it. I mean, it's because there there's so many limitations that are that are imposed on spacecraft instrumentation. Like I said, it's more complex than just like putting an instrument, you know, just putting on a spacecraft and sending it out. These huge instruments that we have on Earth in our laboratories, they're like, you, you have to make them like this big to put on a spacecraft, you know? And so you don't have near the sensitivity. You don't have um, the, the same um, mass resolution, for example, for a mass spectrometer. Like down here, you can like tell exactly what a molecule is. Like just by putting it in there and up, up there, like the, we don't have the, just because of the, because of how robust you need to make these instruments, you, you're not afforded the same uh, luxury of, of how insanely sensitive these instruments on, on earth are. And because these, the stuff you put on a spacecraft has to withstand thermal cycling, going from super cold to super hot environments, it has to. Um, withstand these extreme G forces when you're like vibrations, when you're in orbital insertion and things like that. And so being able to take samples from an extraterrestrial environment and take them back to earth where we have these incredible instruments, like it's, it's like a dream. It's like career. I think there's a term mm -hmm. that I've heard used career catharsis for a lot of people. <laughs> right. So I mean, I think about like, say the, the Hayabusa one mission, which was just barely able to pick up less than a gram of material from asteroid Itakawa, bring that back. And yet astronomers were able to then work with that with just these crumbles at the bottom of the of the collection plate um, to make these incredible discoveries about the mm -hmm. about the formation of the solar system. And now with the samples from Hayabusa 2 with Ryugu, where they actually got a, you know, a nice little cups worth of material, they've, they've found so many amino acids, they've found interstellar grains, they've found just all of these really interesting things that have helped clarify where the water on Earth came from, what the earliest phases of the solar system look like, that you just couldn't do with any of these flyby missions. It yeah, it's like a anything. time capsule. I mean, if you have yeah. the instruments that, that like these earth-based instruments that you can actually use to, to, to figure out exactly what's there, then it's, it, it's so much more of a science return than just like using these, these instruments that are extremely advanced technologically, but don't have the same capabilities as the ones we do have you, here. Do you think that these kinds of hydrothermal vents are more common across the solar system than we know? I mean, we've, you know, we know that we have hints of them at Europa. And when the Voyager 2 spacecraft went past Neptune, it saw some kind of geyser activity on Triton. Do you think that this is the the rule, not the exception with these ocean worlds? I, th I can't make a claim 
that hydrothermal activity is more widespread than we think. Um, because in, in, especially in the, the outer, outer solar system, um, the, I, it, like I said, I, it, it depends on like the tidal energy, like the orbital eccentricity and things like that. Um, and depends on what the structure of the, the moon is. But, but I think that based on what we know now about ocean worlds, that ocean worlds are a lot more common than we thought before. And so whether there's hydrothermal activity on those ocean worlds or within below the surface, I don't really know. But based on what we're learning, um, it's, it's sort of transforming our understanding of planetary habitability because for so long it was just like this Goldilocks zone where you had standing liquid water on the surface, you know, like a, a, a certain distance from a star. But now we're finding all of these, these outer solar system planets that have like these moons that probably like a lot of them. I mean, we, we're going to learn so much whenever we go to Uranus about like, I'm sure we're going to find a ton of ocean worlds there too, but they're like, they're a lot more widespread than we think. And so they are probably like based on our current understanding of habitability, a lot more habitable ocean worlds than there are earth-like planets. And so mm -hmm. they're a compelling destination to look. Yeah, they're all of the conditions are there for life. They're they're quite robust in because they have that protection of the of the ice shell, and as long as there's some kind of energy input coming from their orbital interactions, which are everywhere, then it makes sense that these things are going to be all over the place. They're just brutal to try to investigate, and back to why <laughs> Enceladus is such a gift. <laughs> Right. Like, exactly. Like, That's why Enceladus is so cool. It's like we don't have to drill through 25 <laughs> miles of ice, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> Which I'm sure that, I mean, it, I mean the, the NASA engineers are brilliant. But, oh, but, I've, I've done some wonderful interviews with people who have some great ideas. And you would listen to one of those interviews and you'd be like, yes, let's do that. That sounds great. Um, all of the pieces <laughs> are there. We're ready. I've got my my nuclear fusion power tipped a descending bot that can go through 10 kilometers of ice. No problem. I'm ready. Um, but it's, you know, and yeah, that would unlock everything. But then you sort of, you sort of extrapolate this idea out to the wider universe that probably every star system out there has dozens, if not hundreds of these ocean worlds, all locked under ice, all inaccessible from our perspective. And the, the one that we have for is now. this gift. For now, for sure. Yeah, wait till the warp drives but, show but, up. But, but yes, like, but based based on our current technologies, like Enceladus was, or is, is definitely a gift. And it's our, like, it's a unique opportunity to study the subsurface ocean of an ocean world. It's the only opportunity we have right now. Um, because, I mean, uh, uh, Europa has... Uh, some transient plumes that have been identified. Um, but based on some research that was done in the past couple of years, those plume plumes aren't likely connected to the subsurface ocean. It's they're more likely connected to these brine pockets within, uh, within the ice shell. And so, um, so yeah, I'm based on what we know now. Um, it's the only opportunity we have. Is, is now, is there something special about Enceladus's orbital environment 
that, I mean, I know one of the big questions that you have is like, can we investigate how long these plumes have been around? Is this a thing that's been around for hundreds of millions, billions of years, or is this something that just showed up a million years ago because the heat built up to the point, like a hotspot, you know, like the Hawaiian islands, right? Um, do, do we have a sense that, that, that this is, there's something special about the orbital dynamics of Enceladus that pushes it into this kind of activity? Um, well, that's a bit above my pay grade. I'm a chemist. <laughs> I can uh, I can do my best. Uh, well, well, we know that the 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 plume is at least at Enceladus has been active since the Voyager, um, because it, it's it's really funny actually because uh, when the Voyager spacecraft passed by Enceladus, like people were looking at, at after the plume was discovered more recently, looking back through old Voyager photos, and we actually saw the plume with Voyager, and nobody caught it. It's just this one pixel on Enceladus. And so we caught it. So we at least know it's been active uh, since since the Voyager or one of the Voyager spacecraft passed by it. And we know that it is still active based on the um, James Webb uh, paper. I think it was just released like last month where it imaged the plume. Um, but outside of that, um, I'm honestly not really sure. Yeah. About, like, but what, I guess what I just wonder if like each one of these ocean worlds, whatever are the, either the, you know, the radioactive decay that's happening inside the world or the, the tidal flexing that's happening with its interactions of the, of the planet that it orbits, that the heat builds up until it inevitably has to vent. And then it goes through some kind of venting period for some period of time. And then it's, you know, removed all of the excess heat and then the, the, it, seals off again and then it waits until the next time that it that the and so each one of these worlds in turn will go through this process like if they still have any kind of radioactive decay or tidal heating that's happening inside of them they will all take their turn to vent and you know maybe we see the evidence in the rings of the giant planets i don't know yeah no, no that's that's a cool question because it's like if you heat a closed system what happens you mm -hmm. know and and, yeah, and I, so um my, it my, has my to first at some point uh, release yeah yeah i mean if if more heat's being generated than is being dissipated this is assuming an icy body then you would first have melting of the ice shell um before there would be any sort of uh like expelling material i would based on my understanding i'm not a geophysicist or anything <laughs> um i have some brilliant geophysicist friends but um, I think we talk about this uh, in the paper a little bit, um, is if you have this, this disequilibrium in the heat budget, you would just have melting of the ice shell. But in terms of like expelling material from the subsurface, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Now I'm curious. I'm going to have to go ask somebody about this. <laughs> Great. I, there you go. I, I've, done my, I've done my job then. So, you know, we were very careful to say that this is a concept that, you know, as part of a really fun uh, program, a bunch of people looked at the constraints and tried to figure out what would be possible. What could be the next step if, if perhaps you can convince other people that not only is this possible, but actually of the range of options to explore Enceladus or other planetary bodies, this one makes sense. What would be like a next step that you would be hoping to see? 
Like you just put your paper out there and you're like, um, that's it. I'm moving on to figure out whether other planets will have hotspots or, you know, what's the next step do you think? Um, well, for me uh, specifically, mm-hmm. Oh, well, uh, I'm actually, th- there are some, um, other Enceladus mission concepts that are cur- currently being developed, um, and are pretty far along. And I'm actually in, in my research, I'm supporting, um, one of those at the moment, um, and working with the, with, with, with the team, trying to, trying to nail down some science with respect to those. Um, and, and this is me, a pretty common uh, thing I though, think- right? Like, like you put a, a bunch of ideas in, in paper form, which is a very kind of elegant way to express some suggestions. And then the people who are working on those missions look through and go and kind of go like, Hey, could we incorporate some of these ideas into what we're working on? Do you want to come on as a, that's what I wanted member of the paper. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and that's, that's what you're experiencing. That's what I wanted to do. And because I, I'm really proud of the work that we did. Um, nailing down all these measurement requirements and things like that. Um, and I think I, 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 right now, I don't think I want to like necessarily like work on proposing this. Um, but principal investigator, thing, <laughs> no, no, Alan Stern, you know, yeah. yeah. See, Christmas, like no Christmases, no holidays, you know, yeah. yeah more yeah. work days now. Push through the, yeah. The machine. Maybe, maybe until, one day. Maybe, all right. Maybe, Maybe one day, I don't know. But but one thing that I really wanted to do with with this paper is that normally, like when, when people are developing their mission concepts, it's really hush-hush, and they have their own methods of establishing measurement requirements and everything like that. And so there there isn't a lot of of uh of that in the literature showing how you take science questions and deriving measurement requirements for how you would answer those science questions. There's not a lot of that out there. And so I'm really proud of the work uh, my team and I did um, nailing down those measurement requirements and showing not only uh, future PSSS cohorts, planetary science summer school cohorts, but also like the greater scientific community, like how you take science questions and how you can actually translate that into measurements that you can make with a mission and how you can answer those science questions. If that makes yeah, sense. I mean, I, I think that, you know, my perspective again is, is like, you know, people are working on different aspects of the mission and various parts are boxes that are just like, we'll figure this out later. And for you to show up and go, whatever mission it is, if you want to get a robust detection of life, it's going to need this many samples, this amount of time, this quality of mass spectrometer data, Yes, you know, plug this in and hopefully that will solve the question mark, question mark, question mark portion of your paper <laughs> that you were planning to work on later. And, yeah. and I'm sure it's, it's, uh, m- you know, much appreciated to, to hand that over to people. Thank you. And it's, it's interesting to me, like I think about people who are earlier on in their career who want to be a part of, of these kinds of, of missions that are quite exciting or want to be a part of this kind of, of science. It, it, do you think that it's easy to find these, these gaps where somebody needs to do the legwork to deliver 
this kind of information? Is that is that a good direction? If you're sort of like newer in the field, if you're, you know, freshly graduated, and you're trying to make trying to participate in the scientific process in the community? Is this a good approach to go? I would say that. So if you'd have told me five years ago that I would be working on on this stuff, you'd, you'd have to sedate me. Uh, so, so. Because you'd be so enraged, or because you no, because I've been so stoked. Okay, no, this, right, right. This, this, this stuff's great. Um, but I, I think that uh, are you speaking to like um, people in graduate school or people that have finished graduate school? Or what yeah, you know? I mean, I think that like the impression that I get in talking to a lot of scientists is that there is this publisher parish requirement, and and sometimes you don't know what to write about. You don't know where to to direct your energy because you're not sure what's going to make a difference. But one one way is to solve someone else's problem, to kind of find people that are working in the same kind of area that you are, see where they've got this just, you know, TBD to be done later and fill that whole fill that gap for them right to answer those questions for them to deliver what it is that makes their lives easier and push helps push their mission forward yeah yeah i mean that's 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 how i ended up where i am where i am now is uh <laughs> is doing just that i mean if you're interested in in doing mission science um first of all i would strongly recommend the planetary science summer school program um, it is competed. You do have to apply for it. Um, and it's it's a, a pretty small cohort, but that is a really awesome way to get your foot wet uh, in terms of like mission science specifically. Um, but what you you mentioned about in terms of like just career advice, yeah, I mean that's that that is that that science is is identifying gaps in 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 human understanding and then trying to fill those gaps. Yeah, yeah, and that's what yeah. that, what what we try to do with with this mission concept. I mean, that's what we started is like, what do we not know about Enceladus? You know, and then yeah. everything else kind of followed. You know, so yeah, and I I guess that's what I mean. That's the kind of thing that I'm like, I'm really interested in practical advice, practical ways that people can take action in this field that they've that they've chosen to make a difference and. Whenever I hear something that feels very actionable, very tractable, I sort of latch on to it because now I'm sort of thinking about this as like people ask me, like, I want to be an astronomer. I want to be an astrophysicist. I want to be a, an engineer or I'm an engineer and I want to get involved. I'm a computer programmer. How can I get involved in missions and find places where people have put question mark, question mark, question mark in their work, TBD. And they need help, and you well, can deliver I would say their results. The best advice I could give is meet those people and go up and talk to them, because that's how I ended up where I'm at. When I was when I first started grad school, there was this guy that was the PI of the um, the Icy Worlds Astrobiology uh, Center thing, and he gave a talk at at uh, Georgia Tech, right where I was in grad school. And uh, I just went up and said, hi, I'm Marshall, you know, <laughs> and I asked him a couple of questions and he's like, cool, you want to come work at JPL for the summer? Like, yeah. You know, and then yes. I went out and you, you yes, know, had to sedate me and everything. You know? Yeah, right. But, um, but, but a lot of, the, it's just like, if you talk with people and, and, and 
be gen if you are genuinely enthusiastic yeah. and you care and you're interested in that, then it's infectious. And so, you know, that's that's the best advice I could give is you, yeah. you you'd be surprised. I a hundred percent agree with you. It feels like that's my career so far and it's working out all right for me. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, I haven't gotten the invite to go and and actually spend a summer designing spacecraft, but but now I think I want to apply. That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so see if they need a, you know, a, a space journalist. Uh, well, Marshall, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and, you know, and good luck with either this exact mission flying by 2034 or at least bits and pieces of it joining the collective and, uh, and being part of this mission. I cannot wait until we get more information about Enceladus. So, I, uh, you know, if you discover life on Enceladus... Will you let us know? Yes, yes. I'll be sure to keep you posted. Thank you so much for, for right, taking the time for to have me. I've loved nerd out about this stuff. Uh, it was a pleasure. Right. Wonderful. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofi-Lara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltanen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verabioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.